Hello Emerging Cricket fans and welcome to another episode of the podcast for this week. We've got loads to talk about from the ODI Super League and news from all around the world. But first, a shout out to those who support us on Patreon. From as little as $2 US a month as a patron, you can access bonus content at Emerging Cricket and have a say on our show's direction. A shout out to our newest patrons, Mikey Godsmark and our very own Jaron White. Thank you so much for joining the EC movement. To sign up, log on to Patreon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Emerging Cricket. But for now... Enjoy this week's show. Hello and welcome to another Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm Daniel Bezik and with me this week, I am joined by the man known on Twitter as Copernicus Cricket, Nick Skinner. Nick, how are you? I'm very well, Bez. I'm uh, I'm glad to have you back hosting. It was I was uh, doing the filling in in the previous episode, which nice to have you uh, steering the ship once again. It was honestly very good to go back and listen to it as a fan for once. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed listening on to the Emerging Cricket Podcast, just like so many other people around the world who do tune in. Um, while sort of marooned in in Melbourne, I was able to catch up on on the rest of the Emerging Cricket action with yourself, Tim, and, and Nate Hayes, who who joined in. And I've got to say, Nate's done a, a very good job. It's a, mm. it's a tough act to follow again. Uh, we've given Tim the week off this week. He's been uh, fighting tooth and nail for the Emerging Cricket movement. We decided to give him a night off and talk some cricket without him. Uh, let's start... Oh, well, I suppose we can start in the UAE, and, and Ireland have played a fair bit of cricket in the area over the last couple of weeks. They were curtailed a bit by uh, their series against the UAE, which was cut short by COVID-19, although those ODIs have been officially postponed and, and should be played, hopefully, at a later date. We haven't had a much official word come out of that, but they did officially play their fourth one-day international, even though they missed the second and third. It was an Irish victory. They did manage to win that match by 112 runs. We'll get to their Super League series against Afghanistan in a few moments' time, which hasn't been as successful for the Irish. But coming back to, I suppose, level the series here uh, and rip through the UAE side, again winning by 112 runs, a few notable individual performances with the bat, Harry Tech to 33, Lorcan Tucker 42, Curtis Camp for once again chiming in uh, with the bat 56, and then Simi Singh had a, a day out, 54 <laughs> not out of 57 balls. And, uh, well, 5 for 10 off 10 overs, bowled 4 maidens, 52 dot balls in his spell, Nicholas. Uh, quite remarkable. But just looking at, 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 say, this individual performance alone, uh, quite a good one. Was meant to, I suppose, springboard them into a, a Super League series against Afghanistan. Unfortunately, they couldn't quite do that. But looking to this particular match, they, it was almost a complete performance. Yeah, I think uh, that's probably the best uh, all-round performance I've seen for a while. Simi Singh, I'll, I'll admit to being a Simi Singh skeptic. Um, I think he's does doesn't do enough with the ball, and he's just been quite hittable throughout a lot of his career. But yeah, that game against UAE, he was uh, he was unplayable. I don't know what was what was going on there, but um, yeah, fifty-four not out and a, and a five uh, can't do much better than that. I was I was also pretty interested to see um, Kevin O'Brien trundling in, rolling the arm over with yes, came back the old seamers, and he got he got rid of uh, Rowan Mustafa, who was um, you know probably the UAE's last line of defence in that chase. But um, yeah, the Irish beat the UAE after losing the first game, but yeah, the the, the issues that we're gonna sort of um, 
trouble them in the series against Afghanistan, you could see them already in that batting performance. You know, no one really got going. There were some mediocre contributions, I guess, but they, they still needed to be bailed out. You know, it, when Simi Singh scoring 54 is saving your hide uh, in the innings, then I, th- I think that is a bit of an indictment of the top order, really. Yeah, looking at, at that side, and, and we know that Curtis Camp has done well since he's come into the Irish team and in, into the setup, but you look at the top order, and if Paul Sterling doesn't make runs at the top at the moment, we're not too sure where those runs will come from. You know, even Andy Balburnie will probably put his hand up over the past few games and acknowledge that, that his contribution probably hasn't been enough for the cause either just looking at some of the matches that we will talk about in a, in a few moments time I don't think he made over 20 in the three ODI Super League matches against Afghanistan but yes Ireland took the belt back off UAE talked about it you guys in the in the last podcast where if cricket was boxing then the world championship going of course from from England and then Ireland winning those one day internationals against them and then UAE Ireland taking it back but then to talk about the ODI Super League and well, it was a pretty comprehensive uh, performance by Afghanistan in all three of those matches. I know the first match was close. They only won that by 16 runs, but they came out, won the second one by seven wickets uh, with just under five overs remaining, and then a 36-run win in the third one-day international. And looking at some of the performances there, I think, first of all, we need to praise uh, Ramanullah Gurbaz for his 127 Um, opening the batting for Afghanistan. But to look at it from an Irish perspective, I suppose, it was a pretty disappointing performance in UAE. And a few things didn't go their way, and we'll talk about that. But overall, I think they'll be actually quite disappointed not to jag at least 10 points in that series, especially when some of the other teams around them have picked up points elsewhere, Nick. Yeah, you, you say it's a comprehensive win, you know, and yes, Afghanistan did win all three games. But yeah, each game, there was a few moments or some opportunities for Ireland that they just didn't exploit, and Afghanistan played well um, in in large stretches, but they were vulnerable. You know, you look at the first game, um, even after Gurbaz's uh, century, which was yeah, a magnificent innings on on debut, 127. Um, but you know, they were seven for 208 after 42 overs, and you know, McBrien had had helped the Irish fight back with five for 29, and you know, there's there's no way they should be letting. You know they they shouldn't be letting Afghanistan score another eighty runs after that. Obviously, Rashid, you know he's a handy slogger, but what are Ireland's bowlers doing? Why why are they letting them get away with that? And then you know the response again, Camper, uh, Look and Tucker had a, had a good innings, um, but then they just let them go and and they couldn't quite get there because they didn't they didn't have you know they they'd let Afghanistan put too much on the board and then yeah the second and third games were sort of a bit of a, a, a carbon copy of each other really they had. Paul Sterling coming in and smashing a century, and then nobody else really providing any support. You know, the second one there was a partnership with Camper again, um, but nobody else really really kicked on. And um, again, they were, they were three for two hundred and eight after forty one overs, which is a, a very strong position to be in. And they should have got a lot more than than two hundred and fifty nine. Um, obviously, that second game where uh, where Ramat Shah got a got a century and. Um, and Hashmatullah scored uh, 82. That was a clinical performance from Afghanistan, chasing it down. Um, and the third one, again, you know, Afghanistan, 4 for 66, 5 for 117. They shouldn't get to 266. You know, you can't keep getting mugged by Rashid Khan. <laughs> and obviously, Sterling realized he needed to score all the runs because he, yeah, scored a ton and the run rate was going fine, but nobody else even got to 25. And, you know, once he was gone, they just crumbled. So, Yes, Rashid is an excellent bowler, and yes, Majib 
bowling early on is is tough to face and and you know I'm not saying Afghanistan played badly. I'm just saying that Afghanistan definitely had moments where Ireland could have exploited their weakness, but they they just didn't have that. They don't have that cutting edge with the ball and and the batting is too fragile. Yeah, and again, to to look at it from an ODI Super League perspective and and just looking at at some of the teams that have managed to to jag points, the West Indies we've seen in Bangladesh field a a pretty second-rate outfit. Bangladesh stealing points there. Zimbabwe beat Pakistan in a match there earlier on. Uh, And we look at at somewhere like the Netherlands who will have home series, um, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. And yeah, I suppose, you know, Ireland beating England seems like a lifetime ago, not only with COVID and everything happening from from that perspective, but yeah, to come out here and and I know the conditions here are very difficult, and I'm sure they're sick of Rashid Khan because every time Rashid <laughs> Khan comes on to bowl, or bat, he seems to just have a way with them, especially and and with the bat too, he came out and slogged him around. Um, I suppose playing BBL cricket kind of helped him get his eye in almost for the ODI Super League, and and Ireland unfortunately felt the wrath, but yeah, Paul Sterling. I think, you know, he is becoming quite a complete player at the top of the order for for Ireland, and he's 30 at the moment. He's still probably got four or five more good years of cricket left in him. He probably thinks he he could probably churn out a few more years as well, especially looking at his opening partner, Kevin O'Brien, who unfortunately didn't have a great series here, but has been able to consistently, you know, as a trend going through his career, pile on the runs when, when Ireland have needed him to. But I think the good the, the, the aspect that not many people talk about with Paul Sterling and his batting, he's, despite being a top-order player, he's got experience playing uh, in the Middle East and in parts of Asia, and he plays spin a lot better than a lot of other players in this level of the game. I know we talk about associate cricket a lot, but even, you know, these two new full members, you know, they're very much in that in that same sort of echelon and Paul Sterling is, has come out and played excellently here and as you go look through you know the, the Irish lineup if it wasn't for a few guys in the middle order there they were in serious trouble of completely crumbling and it got to the point where in the last match we know that every single match counts for, for, for 10 points on the ODI Super League but it did look as if Ireland wanted to ring the changes there. James McCollum came in for Kevin O'Brien who struggled in the first two games and Gareth Delaney was left out which is I think, again, if you looked back, you know, six or eight months ago when Ireland played England, Gareth Delaney probably would have been the first names on the on the team sheet. So not really sure what the end game is there. And we know that there is a long time in this World Cup Super League, uh, in this ODI Super League for World Cup qualifying. But again, every game counts. And another thing that we need to be a little bit wary of are overrates and things like that. Teams are getting, you know, teams will be penalized for a slow overrate. We don't know how much that will come into it. But remember looking at, say, Australia when they played India. And I know that particular ODI series wasn't part of that action. But if teams are going to, you know, carry on with overrates like that, we, we could see some some interesting movements in and amongst that table. And and again, all of these matches count. Again, we just have to cite those, those other ODI Super League series that have happened already. Afghanistan will feel like, you know, they're on the way to, to finding themselves being close to that top eight if, you know, they've given themselves every chance moving forward. Another point you wanted to, to bring up, Nick, and, and I saw this when we sort of put our notes together for this week, was the decision-making, the umpiring, I, I think, is a topic of conversation that, that should probably be discussed at, at some point here. We thought that with this series being played on neutral territory, we'd probably just get neutral umpires anyway. But Afghanistan were able to field umpires, and a lot of the decisions, I suppose, didn't go uh, Ireland's way. And I think all of them were... were reversed and and the right decisions were made eventually with the technology available but it's definitely food for thought yeah it's it's quite strange um 
yeah, yeah. Uh, some uh, uh, unnamed Irish fans were uh, were very unhappy about this, uh, likening it to the bad old days of you know uh, t- touring Pakistan in the eighties or you know that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's it, it's strange because the you know the ICC changed the rules to allow home umpires or you know umpires from one of the home teams to to officiate, and and that was a pretty reasonable call when it's um you know so an, an English umpire who is already living in England, but it sort of seems like Afghanistan are bending the spirit of the rule in, in terms... Because they're flying over Afghan umpires to officiate in a match when the whole point of the, having the home umpires was to reduce the need for, for flights in the middle of the pandemic. So, yeah, it, it, it strikes me as quite weird that they're allowed to do that. And, that, you know, there's plenty of <laughs> neutral umpires who reside in the UAE and, and could have officiated. So, I, I don't really understand why that that was allowed. Or, you know, if, if that was going to happen and, you know, if the, Afghanistan was allowed to fly in home umpires, why weren't Ireland allowed to fly in some home umpires to... I don't know. It's, it's just quite strange situation to me. And, yes, they had the DRS and they were able to um, overturn it, I think, most of the, the bad calls. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's not a good look. It's not just the Super League too. We've seen some officiating in in other parts of the world in in full member cricket too, where DRS and 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 home umpires have definitely been questioned. Um, and we know the world that we live in, and it's you know the the circumstances are extenuating. So I think you know we do have to probably give, I suppose you know in in cricketing terms you know the benefit of the doubt to them. But it is as difficult as the job is. You do have to wonder. You know they're so many instances i think we had a sample size big enough there to to understand that there was a trend happening <laughs> yeah. um again I, I don't exactly know what what the solution to all of that is you know that's well and truly above my pay grade and i'm sure that will be looked at under great scrutiny by those making those decisions but i suppose looking to afghanistan you know there were multiple performers i think the good thing about afghanistan is is that they play fantastic team cricket and it wasn't just gurbaz who made Runs there. Ramit Shah also made runs in the series. Um, even you know Askar Afghan at times chimed in. A lot of them put together some some handy innings there. And then, as you said, Rashid Khan at the end in that innings when they posted uh, nine for two six six. So I think that we've just seen, I suppose, the the culmination of of some great individual performances from Afghanistan, but in turn turning it into a great team performance. They they definitely seem to be slightly at that next level of the international game. And and looking ahead to some of the series that they do have in the Super League, and you made a point about this, Sri Lanka, Zimbabwe, Bangladesh, and they even play, you know, Pakistan, who, you know, on their day, you don't really know what they're going to get out of them. So I think they haven't just turned a corner, Afghanistan. I think they would probably look at a lot of those series and, and say to themselves, look, all of these are quite winnable. Why why can't they qualify automatically without going through the the qualifier stage? So, again, thirty vital points in the context of of this whole campaign, and and who knows, we might look to January twenty twenty one as a as a point where Afghanistan really did you know stamp a foot of authority on on the entire competition, or at least you know on the, on the series and the qualification. So we will look at that with with deep interest over the course of that campaign. Uh, and of course, we'll have a lot of that here at Emerging Cricket, especially from a Ireland, Afghanistan, and, and Netherlands point of view. Uh, one more point to, to to bring up in, in terms of Ireland and, and some somber news that that did come 
out of there was the passing of Roy Torrens, uh, an island player from uh, for over a decade and a half from the late 60s to the 80s, uh, was well involved in, in Irish cricket there for a long time. I saw a lot of stories on Twitter over the past week from a number of players from the Irish setup who had so many positive things to say about uh, Roy and his work there. It definitely seems like he, he's left a hole and his own place in Irish cricket. Yeah, and you know, I saw a great post from Paul Sterling actually talking about how you know how much he loved um, Torrens and how he'd been sort of he was he was a team manager for a long time of the you know the Irish side and uh, he was sort of a, a bit of a mentor to a lot of the younger guys and they they all really looked up to him by all accounts. So yeah, and he you know dedicated his his century to to Torrens in the second game and yeah, it seems like a, a great loss to Irish cricket. Um, yeah, he he won an OBE in two thousand and nine for services to cricket, which you know that's not nothing, and um, you know a much much lamented figure in in the Irish cricket family. Before we move on from from the Ireland series, um, it's you know a little bit off topic, but the, you sort of uh, briefly mentioned it and moved on. But the the points penalty for slow over rates, uh, the way it's applied is kind of silly. Like obviously, I mean India has been penalised a point even though they auto qualify. That's you know <laughs> you can't really help that. But the the fact that it's it's a single point as a penalty. It's a bit strange because obviously the first one is is very important because it'll put you behind, but then the next few don't really matter until you get to maybe five because, you know, if you're getting 10 points for each victory, if you're on 10 points and then you're on nine points, that's a huge difference. But if you're on nine points, eight points, seven points, six points, that doesn't make any difference. So, you can keep violating the over rates again and again until you get to like five, which I'm sure there'll be some teams on... on with five-point increments from washouts or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, it basically gives them a, a free pass to waste time for, for the next couple of games. Yeah, it, it was ridiculous. And I don't want to harp too much on, on full memory because that's, you know, not while we're here together talking on a podcast. But Australia played an ODI series against India here and the over-rates were... Oh, they were abysmal, yeah. They were ridiculously bad. Uh, crowds... TV networks, no one wants to go through that. So, yeah, you kind of hope that the penalties were a little bit stricter. And, and I've never really seen a, a punishment that, that really suits it to a point where it, it deters anyone from doing it again. So, that's my bugbear with international cricket at the moment, and, and we'll leave it at that. No, yeah, I mean, fines for multi-millionaire cricketers is, is kind of ridiculous. I, I did the maths on one of... I think Virat Kohli got a fine during the IPL that worked out to... Um, uh, to you know, if if you and I got that uh, fine equivalent to our income, it would have been something like five or ten dollars, <laughs> because obviously he's a multimillionaire earning huge amounts of money every year. Getting a you know fine when you've got what twenty million dollars of endorsements every year seems kind of pointless. Uh, so I think oh, he, he, actually here we go. We ask uh, our guests what we'd change, and um, maybe one of the things I'd change is to have uh, instead of fines or you know whatever for for. Um, penalties for slow over rates, make it something that happens on the field. So, you know, I don't know, something like 10 runs per over that they miss or, you know, something along those lines where it'll actually start to really build up very quickly and it, it won't be something you can just go, I'll just take the fine and uh, and take a tactical advantage. Yeah, hopefully someone comes up with a, a solution to this soon. And again, we're, we're all is if you, if you do manage to, to find something, but... To move on uh, and heading to the USA and they've named a training squad for some of their national campaigns going forward. We saw the return of Ali Khan. Ali Khan once again named in that training group. We've seen him sort of maraud around the T20 leagues around the world. Uh, A champion uh, in the CPL got picked up by KKR in the IPL 
didn't get a game, was also injured in that tournament, unfortunately. But yeah, the USA have named 44 players in that squad, and I won't uh, put anyone through naming all 44 players. But <laughs> there are a few players of note to definitely mention. Uh, Narsing Dionaran, who was, uh, of course part of that West Indian test team many moons ago. He's been named a lot of um, usual suspects, of course, from the USA national team over the past couple of years, but a few names to probably remind people of because the list is so big. Cameron Gannon, the uh, Queensland fast bowler, is has been named in the squad. Ganjanan Singh, who's from the West Indies, played in the CPL, is part of that squad too. Ian Holland's there. Josh Dascom. Karen Viadia, who uh, I think Peter Della Pena talked about him moving from Gujarat, I think. I think he played um, some age-level group cricket there. Uh, I think he played under-19s for India, and then he had a birth date issue, which came out uh, <laughs> sometime later. Rusty Tehran is there again. Uh, Shine Jahangir as well, who I think moved from Pakistan to relocate to Texas. There are so many players, and we've talked about USA's full member aspirations, but they're going to get a good look at a lot of these players all in one spot. We know that they're involved in Cricket World Cup League 2. They're on the course to try and make, make the qualifier for the 2023 World Cup and go beyond that. I look at this team and, and I wonder, one, how... Are they going to find the first eleven for, for for this team? No matter what the format is, we we saw that they were disappointing in the T Twenty World Cup qualifiers as well. No matter who turned out for them, is it a case of too many cooks spoil the broth here, Nick? Because I feel like with forty four players, you're going to spend most of this training camp just working out who is going to be in a in a cut down squad. Yeah, it does seem a bit strange to have such a big training squad. I guess, I mean, maybe maybe they're going the way of having a sort of a bubble situation where they can have a lot of replacements to call on if, if need be or, you know, something along those lines maybe. I, I don't know. But, um, yeah, <laughs> some of the names are a bit... Left field? Yeah, I mean, Dinaran, I remember him playing in a, a series ages ago against Australia. I thought he, was, he batted quite well. But, you know, that was that was a long time ago. Um, we also we also saw a great bit of trivia from um, emerging cricket contributor uh, Malar Hathi. Dinaran took Tendulkar's wicket for the last time in Test cricket. <laughs> uh, Malar called him the modern Eric Hollies, um, <laughs> in in reference to the man who took Bradman's wicket uh, for the last time. So that's that's some good trivia. But um, yeah, I, it is something that bothers me that these um, associate teams keep picking these aging ex full member players. Presumably on the logic that oh well he you know he played Test cricket for the West Indies so he must be good but then you know they've got Xavier Marshall in this squad and Xavier Marshall's numbers for the USA are frankly abysmal like they're even worse than his numbers for the West Indies and you would think that playing at a lower level he'd be able to do better but he's he's been worse so I think the the logic of picking ex full member players thinking that that will be good is pretty flawed a lot of the time and and you know. Obviously, Ali Khan is is he never really played um, much top level cricket in Pakistan. He was discovered playing in Ohio. So I, I think like pick the guys that you've got, not these you know just on their reputation or you know just the fact that ten years ago they played a Test match. It, it doesn't make sense to me, and it, it, it's yeah, it's it's so frustrating to to see. And there are there are under nineteens USA players that are have been picked. Uh, Peter Delapena mentioned uh, Vivek Narayan. But, you know, he's off playing university cricket in the UK because he, you know, he feels that's the best way to, to, to develop his game. 
but you know, what about all the other players in the USA who can't afford to do that, or, or <laughs> you know, who are just playing in some random backwater league that no one's heard of, like Ali Khan was? Where where are you looking for these guys? You know, what, it, it's easy to pick a, a former Test player because they have name recognition, but it, it feels a, a very much like they're sort of falling back towards the the old ways. And again, this is a point that I made when we talked about their aspirations for full membership before 2030. And I think the sky actually is the limit for for USA cricket because, you know, there are enough people around, there are enough good players in the country that it's possible. It's just the issue is that the country is so vast. There are so many different leagues trying to do the same thing. Too many administrators probably trying to do the same thing. USA cricket has a really tricky task and, and I don't really envy them with it in that they've got to unite so many different people across so many different leagues to try and achieve what they want to achieve. And it's possible. We could easily see the USA become a a, a strong, not only a strong associate member, but pushing on to do greater things in the next five to 10 years. But for it to happen, it's going to take an incredible number of people to make it happen. And we know it's been tricky for the USA. They got rolled for 35 against Nepal last year. They could not play spin. And that was well documented across everywhere. I hope for their sake that they managed to to just find the 11. But again, you know, 44 players there. They're going to have to crunch the numbers pretty hard and pretty quickly for, for that to all be achieved. A successful USA will go a long way to some successful associate cricket. In the meantime, in the eyes of the world of international cricket, but it's going to take a lot of selection. It's going to take a lot of coaches to look at a lot of players. And it's just a really big project all up. So we will look at that with quite a deep interest because it is a very fascinating part of the world and we know the troubles and and the challenges that they have, whether they're self-inflicted or not, but we will keep an eye out for them moving forward. Some more, I suppose, off the field news and we'll head to Africa now. Uh, Rwanda have a new women's coach, Nick Leonard Namburo, switching from Zimbabwe. And and you made a point about this while looking into the career of Namburo. He's one of these coaches that are relatively new on the cricket scene in that they're not exactly ex-players who have played at the top level of international cricket and then going to coaching, but rather moving into coaching quite young and then developing that way. Talk us a little bit more about Leonard Namburo. Yeah, he's I mean he's played some sort of uh, club cricket in Zimbabwe, but um basically he has never played at, at any kind of um top or, or even semi professional level, um, which is is interesting in itself. You know, there aren't that many coaches who aren't ex players. Um but he's done it the hard way. He's, he's just moved up the ranks. He he started off coaching I think it was a couple of schools in, in Harare and then um, got some club gigs and assistant gigs and, and that sort of thing. Did some work with the national team, coached Namibia to the uh, qualifiers in 2019. Um, and then, yeah, now, now he's moved off to Rwanda. So that's good to see for him that, you know, there is a pathway for coaches who, who aren't professional cricketers and don't have that name recognition because similar to, to the previous point that I made about, you know, picking ex-full member players. But the, a lot of the time, there's this kind of thought that, well, just because someone was a, a great player, well, they must be good at coaching, which isn't necessarily true. And, you know, be, mentoring people and, and being able to help them uh, fix their game and, and that sort of thing, that that's a skill in itself, which is not necessarily the same as being able to play. Um, so, I think that's good for Namburo that he's able to make a career like this. And it's good for Rwanda as well, because their women's team is definitely on the up. They've, um, they've been performing uh, better and better at sort of African regional level. And yeah, I think it's good that they're taking the women's team seriously. Yeah, definitely interested to see how this all goes. And and you're quite right. You know, being an unbelievable player does not exactly translate to to being a good 
coach or you know other professions working inside of cricket but not at a playing level you know so we probably say the same thing about commentators as well but (laughs) for someone to actually specialize in the in the coaching ranks from a very young age and to kind of equip himself and and to learn about the game um in a way where he can impart his knowledge to to other people and and i think it's probably a little bit easy to do perhaps on on the women's side of things but you never know we we could see something happen like this in, in international cricket and domestic cricket where people come more from coaching backgrounds uh it happens definitely a lot more in other sports and i think the dynamic between a coach and and say a captain of a cricket team is much different in cricket in regards to other sports i think we've made that point abundantly clear since you know this podcast began and i'm sure other people share the same sentiment but I will be, you know, looking at this with with a vested interest, knowing that, you know, if I ever want my cricket coaching badges, there might be a pathway for for myself and other people out there as well. But it's it is a great it's a great tool because, you know, emerging cricket is dying for people to give more of their time and more of their their knowledge to the game and give it back to the game as well. So stories like Namburo, it's really encouraging, I think, from an emerging cricket point of view because they are coming from a full member in. Yeah, I applaud this, you know, Namburo and, and, and for Rwanda as well. We we know that, you know, they're heavily involved in women's cricket. We saw the Kwabuka tournament uh, in previous years that has such a, a, a powerful uh, presence in in the sporting and, and human life of, of people in Rwanda and, and, and parts of, of Africa as well. So looking forward to, to seeing how that goes. And again, we'll, we'll keep up with that uh, from an emerging cricket point of view. Moving back to the Middle East and to the UAE specifically where we've seen an independent anti-corruption tribunal find Mohammed Naveed and Shaiman Anwar guilty of two offences each under the ICC anti-corruption code following a hearing there. Naveed and Shaiman were both guilty of Article 2.1.1 and 2.4.4. Uh, 2.1.1 for being party to an agreement or effort to fix or contrive or otherwise influence improperly the result, progress, conduct or other aspects of a match at the T20 World Cup qualifier as well as uh, 2.4.4 failing to disclose to the ACU full details of any approaches. Uh, Mohamed Naveed was also guilty of breaking the Emirates Cricket Board Anti-Corruption Code uh, for the T10 League in 2019 Again, for those two articles for being party to an agreement or effort to contrive or otherwise influence improperly the result, progress, conduct, and other aspects of a match and failing to disclose uh, approaches to the anti-corruption unit. Again, another black spot on the game and unfortunately in the emerging game, Nick, and again, UAE has been an area where it has happened uh, on multiple occasions now and we've also seen other players uh, leave, I suppose, before they were able to to find themselves guilty, there's been a, a couple of other players who have, who have fled the country as well. So again, we we don't know absolutely everything, but reading into these details, it, it's not a great look. It looks as if the anti-corruption unit has acted swiftly and, and diligently to to everything that's been handed to them, and justice has been met eventually. But again, it it comes at the detriment of the clean players, I suppose, from the UAE national team who have been affected by all this, not only at the qualifier, but but beyond. We're, we're still seeing the, the consequences of this affect the UAE national team. Yeah, I mean, just from a fan perspective, it's such a, it's a shame. You know, Anwar was a great batsman. I saw him hit a century against Ireland in the uh, the 2015 World Cup. It was fantastic innings. You know, he's a quality player. Yeah, in Brisbane. Yeah, it was, a, it was a thriller, actually. they I think Ireland just got home. Yeah, really, really tense chase. But yeah... 
such such a shame. It's always you know really depressing to see this um, sort of news come out, and it, it does hit associate cricket perhaps harder. I mean, I'm not we we don't know necessarily, but it, it, associate cricket is is sort of uniquely vulnerable in in the it is being broadcast, and and these players are you know on TV, and and they have the opportunity to fix, but. A lot of the time, they're they're not particularly well paid, and so they're probably um, you know easy prey for for fixers to, to try and corrupt them. I don't know what we do about that <laughs> because uh, the only thing that really can, um, I guess, as as Tim likes to say, pastoral care is probably the, the the ultimate answer of you know educating these players and and giving them you know better opportunities as as human beings to to not take the easy cash, but. Yeah, it's just sad, and it's during a World Cup qualifier. You know, the allegations that they they were offering to fix matches during a World Cup qualifier—that's such a betrayal to their teammates. And you know, imagine being a, a UAE player like um, you know Armand Raza, who picked up the pieces as captain after after this all went down just before the the tournament started. You know, knowing that these guys in your team were were deliberately going to underperform and essentially sell out their teammates for for their own profit it's 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 terrible uh, looking at you know you, you the reports come out and you can read a, a the the sort of the public version of it and there's some some pretty damning quotes in there you know Naveed saying stuff like uh, you know bro I'm the captain of the UAE we can do anything what does that tell you that he's he's offering to just just sell out his teammates it's it's disgusting i i think probably the, the the best result in all of this is that UAE have carried on quite well without them and, and it goes to show that you know if you're willing to to do this for a sake of a few bob then you know the game will leave you behind um as we've seen here and and a couple of UAE players especially some of the young guys who have come through have really taken the opportunity with with both hands and and they're now on their path to their own you know careers and and, and international games you know uh Mayapan, uh, Vrida Aravind as well have been just two players who have had to come in, you know, due to the extenuating circumstances and they've performed admirably. So the game will leave you behind if, if you are bad to the game. The game doesn't owe you anything. Um, and we, we've seen that here again. And you will be found out if you don't report your approaches to the ACU. And again, we you guys spoke to Steve Richardson um, on the pod last year at some point and, and he made that point, you know, we will find you if 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 you manage to to try and do anything under the table. And again, another point that you brought up, Nick, uh, and Peter Delapena talked about it when Hamza Tariq of Canada was was approached. That you know, associate cricketers now are going to find themselves in an interesting spot where there are more streams, there are more games that are accessible on the internet to watch, and as a result, people will gamble on them. And people will find opportunities to, to try and make contact with players playing in these games and make approaches. It just becomes a case of the ACU and, and other people involved in national boards around the world to sit down with their players and brief them on, you know, what is an approach? What is sinister activity? How can you work out when someone, you know, is grooming you or, or doing something sinister to try and get you to be involved in a fix and again yeah tim cutler's favorite quote pastoral care it's it's so so crucial in all of this and to have these players wrapped almost in a cotton wool just to make sure that you are going to be away from all of this but it is it is a pretty simple concept and and maybe the bubbles of of covid have kind of helped with this where players are actually away from the general public but it can be a simple case of just someone being someone staying in the same hotel room as a certain player 
someone going to a shopping center and meeting up with someone. It, it, it's tricky, but hopefully you would you would hope that these players understand and, and know what to do when that situation arises. I, I just hope that, you know, if a player is to report an approach that's been made to them, that they have the subsequent protection if, if they were to kind of be put in that spot. Because I'm sure as a player, that's actually quite a, a tricky one as well. When you are approached and you are quite scared of the situation and you turn to, to someone and say, oh, you know, I don't know what such and such is going to do to me if I find myself in this situation and I don't come through with X. So, look, it, it's it's a tricky situation and it's only going to happen more in associate cricket and with the advent of streaming too, but it does look like, you know, the ACU and everyone involved in that are doing a, a, a fantastic job all the same. Um, and, and again, you know, you will be found out yeah, and I would, um, I definitely recommend that interview with with Steve Richardson of the ACU, the the anti corruption unit um, that we did uh, last year. It's it's a very interesting sort of look into the inner workings of um, you know how they go about their job of trying to keep cricket safe from this sort of corruption. And and um, to your point about people who might be worried about you know will they get in trouble for re- reporting something or, or you know if they got a bit sort of. Uh, caught up or something you know he, he does go into the you know how that works and and they don't want to ping players you know they, they want to give players the opportunity to do the right thing and i think looking at this report it's interesting because there's there's quite a few quotes from um the players and some some sort of whatsapp screenshots and, and that sort of thing but there's also some quotes from the interviews and you know it's sort of interesting to see uh, you know richardson in action i guess as uh, you know doing the interviews and and see his uh, approach to to questioning the players and you know he he gives them every opportunity to tell the truth and and but you know some of the time they they just um they don't yeah it's 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 damning stuff yeah they <laughs> There's another quote here, you know, saying uh, everyone is earning money, okay? Even Naveed is earning money in his previous league from other bookies. So why why can't we? You know, they 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 know what they're doing, and they're just they're choosing to do it. And and yeah, you will get caught if you, if you're doing that sort of thing. Uh, and just to kind of tie a bow on all of this too, and and reading into some of the work that uh, a few cricketers associations have done, Fika in particular, where leagues and teams within leagues have actually struggled to pay their own players so mm, yeah, i think point. a lot of you know the responsibility on, on how these players are actually paid is on the shoulders of those who employ them as well so that that's another thing that really needs to be addressed as well once we do move forward you know and that's not just an associate level thing with with some of these t20 leagues i've heard of very high end international players playing in some of the top leagues around the world not paid properly for their services so you know, that would be a step in the right direction in terms of stamping some of this out simply because, you know, the players wouldn't even feel more inclined than they were already to to partake in this sinister activity. But you would hope that, the, you know, that the good conscience in everyone would, would decide that it wasn't a path to go down. Uh, finally, Nick, we need to talk about two associate players who played in the BBL, unfortunately didn't make... The finals with quite a strong team, but not through the fault of their own. Tim David and Sandeep Lamachane, of course, of Singapore and Nepal, respectively. Tim David with over 250 runs in the competition. Sandeep picked up a wicket every game, roughly eight wickets in eight matches, at an economy of 7.5. And looking at Tim David's numbers there at the end of their campaign, he had an average of over 30 and a strike rate over 150. I think there are only a handful of players in that same echelon, and those players were the likes of Chris Lynn, Ben Cutting, 
Alex Hales, Dan Christian, Dan, Daniel Sams. So he was very much in elite company. And look, I think it was quite a positive campaign for both of them. And to look at Hurricanes and, and their list for next season, I think they're probably two players that would probably safely say that they deserve to be on the team list next year. Uh, Sandeep, maybe not as potent as he once was, especially in the early, uh, in the first year at the Melbourne Stars. But you've got to say, definitely did not do themselves uh, an injustice in that competition, particularly David, who looks to looks to have gone from strength to strength. Yeah, David's definitely, yeah, he had a very handy season. Uh, what I liked about him, he, he batted a bit lower than he typically does uh, for Singapore, but, you know, he just came in and, and sort of boosted the run rate in that middle lower order uh, with, with not so many overs left to go. And he doesn't waste many deliveries, which is, that's that's a big thing in T20. You know, it, it, you either you get going or you don't. And uh, players who sort of you know, sit around and, and suck up deliveries and, and you know, they often can cause problems. So the fact that David... Uh, doesn't do that. He either he either comes off or he doesn't. That I think is is that's a good quality to have as a T20, um, especially sort of yeah middle lower order batsman. Um, Sandy, yeah, I don't I don't know what's happened. He's um he, he's, he didn't bowl badly, but he's just just sort of waning a little bit. I don't know. I mean, he he did get coronavirus, so <laughs> we we can probably cut him a little bit of slack. But um, you, you know, you watch a lot more Big Bash than me. Is it is his lines off, or are they sort of working out and you know, seeing him out of the hand a bit better, or what? What do you think's going on? Oh, to be honest, I think it's a case of of the idea of say second year syndrome. I know this is his third season, but I think that his action and the analysis on him is is probably a little bit more scrutinized by every other team in mm. the competition and they're probably looking at, at, at him as someone that they have to see off rather than someone to attack I think we all know that in the first couple of in the first season when a new player is on the block say like a Tanvir Sanger from the Sydney Thunder who bowls a little bit differently to Sandeep Lamachani in that he throws the ball up and he bowls a wider line he doesn't bowl as many wrongins but I think a lot of people, especially earlier in the tournament, would have had a target on Tanvir Sanger's back and said, oh, this is a young guy. We need to get on top of him. He ended up taking a bunch of wickets early. And by the end of it, a lot of teams actually kind of played him a lot differently, shut up shop a little bit. I think Sandeep's in, this, in the same bracket. I think he bowls kind of a similar pace to Rashid Khan, a different action, but definitely whippy, definitely tricky to pick the ball out of his hand. And Talking to a couple of people involved in, you know, cricket at the high end, they actually said that it's very difficult to to pick up the white ball in the evening when when the ball is spinning out of the right hand or out of the left hand for a left hand wrist spinner, of course. It's a little bit tricky to actually work out which way the ball's spinning because a lot of people use the seam almost as their as their bearing to see which way the ball is turning. And in the evening it's just a little bit more difficult to pick up. Now, I don't know if it's just the scheduling, but I did notice that the Hurricanes, especially earlier in the competition when Sandeep came in from New Year's Day, they actually played more afternoon games. Hmm, interesting. I don't know yeah. if that you know necessarily affected affected his numbers, but I think it was just a case of of a lot of the opponents just turning around and say, "Look, you know, this guy's one of you know he's their he's their key spin threat. We just need to see him off and attack elsewhere." Because at the start of the tournament. Hobart didn't really have a key spinner. It was probably the thing that they needed to add after Christmas to really make that finals push. Now, it was interesting that they, they didn't really pick Johan Botter. He was only really yeah. used as an X-factor. Uh, they had a young kid, Will Parker, who got hit around a little bit, definitely a little bit too raw for, for BBL cricket. And then, yeah, Darcy Short actually had a good season with the ball. He bowled more overs this year. And then when Sandeep came in, it was a case of... Yeah, let's see him out and attack the quick bowling. And then James Faulkner got injured for the Hurricanes, which I think was a big loss. 
And then it was a case of Meredith, Boland, and Ellis, who are all quite similar. Meredith is probably a yard quicker than the pair of them. But I think a lot of teams did target those quick bowlers and just see Sandeep off. So I, I think that there was nothing wrong particularly with how Sandeep bowled per se. It was just a case of, yeah, we can actually manufacture good totals against the Hobart Hurricanes, even if we let Sandeep take one for 24, one for 28, maybe one for 30 if we're lucky. And we'll back ourselves against the likes of Boland Ellison and, and Meredith and that fifth bowler who normally was short to, to really go on and attack. So yeah, I think it's another tick in the box for, for, for Sandeep just to prove his credentials once more. You know, this isn't just a flash in the pan, one season wonder. He will be putting in performances like this over the next, you know, five to 10 years. I can't see it changing too much. I think the only thing that will probably stop him now is that the game might change to a point where, you know, middle order batsmen play leg spin a little bit better and everyone overall from a leg spinning point of view gets found out. But then it will become a case of those guys reinventing again because he's got a good wrong and he's got a good leg break. Players can't pick the wrong and still. Dan Christian just got completely comprehensively beaten in, in one of the dismissals in one of the later games for the Hurricanes. So again, I, I think this is another positive season for, for Sandeep and another step in the in the right direction. Yeah. And just before we move on from the Big Bash, I think um, you, you mentioned Dan Christian in the comments there, but gee, what a season he's oh. had. Is it the, oh, he's took 13 wickets and smashed a pile of runs at what, 180 strike rate. It was amazing. Yeah. And I, I don't know. There's just something really... Um, I don't know, just really reassuring about seeing Dan Christian. He's, what, 38 now? He's just uh, plugging away, hitting 30 off 20 every game and, uh, you know, one for 25. And he's just, he's just still going along. So good good for him. Oh, if only if only he had a passport and could play cricket in the associate world. <laughs> could absolutely carve up. That's just about all the time that we have for this week. There are a couple of news bits and pieces to wrap up, though, to end the show. First, Canada's Nitish Kumar has signed on with the Leeward Islands Hurricanes in the West Indies Regional Super 50 Cup. The top order batsman was named in a 15-man roster with the Hurricanes' first game on February 7 against the Windward Islands. And Nepal all-rounder Parwan Saraf has struck a blazing 13-ball 50 in the Prime Minister Cup for the Police Club this week over there in Kathmandu in a win over Lumbini Province. Parwan hit six sixes and a four in his innings, with Sanil Damala also pushing for national team selection with a century opening the batting. The PM Cup reaches its climax this weekend with the Dribuvan Army Club taking on the Armed Police Force Club in the final. Make sure to subscribe to the Emerging Cricket Podcast if you haven't done so already so you can tune in as soon as it drops every week. Pass the pot around and make sure to give us a five-star review. If you want to support us financially, go to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Emerging Cricket where you can support us from as little as $2 US a month. You'll get access to extended shows of a number of our podcasts and you'll have a say on the show's direction. For now, on behalf of myself, Daniel Beswick and Nick Skinner, see you next week.